podcast within a podcast pottering around the uh, second broken teacup of Mangum Reads. We are three muggles who would still be impressed by McGonagall's transformation even after a death omen. My name is Sarah. I am joined as always by my co-host BJ and Spencer. How are you all doing? Doing fine, Sarah. I'm enjoying Memorial Day. How do you feel about uh, the pink versus blue preference? Uh, unclear if they are actually the same pattern in just different colors or... If they're actually different patterns, I need more yeah, information com- on this. <laughs> completely, like, and and I also feel like the movie might not be true to that like particular scene. Mm-hmm. I could also just seeing it being a completely random jug- jumble of teacups, and she just picks out two colors and be like, "Well, don't take that one. Take this one because I like this one." Like ninety percent of them are green. <laughs> That might be the case. Uh, a rewatch might be in order at this point. <laughs> so we are on, what number chapter are we on? Is this chapter six? It is chapter, chapter six. six of the third book of Harry Potter. Uh, the chapter title is Talons and Tea Leaves. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have some segments that we do here. We have a rapid fire recap that is going to be jam packed this time around. I have a, <laughs> Good a, luck. a sneaking suspicion. Um, I read the tea leaves and I think it's... Oh, um, then we have some uh, BJ. You have some wizard wheezes, uh, Spencer, newbies notes. We award house points, and then there are uh, questions, as always. Um, and I feel like questions in this chapter are probably going to end up with a lot of me going, "Wait, three chapters." <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay, gotcha. Uh, just mark a guess. half these down right now. Just a guess. <laughs> yeah, if you could just edit your list based on that, Spencer, that would be great. <laughs> You need to wait some time until you can turn a bunch of pages and figure out what's going on, and you'll get it. Yeah. Okay. No way of knowing in advance what those questions are, but I'll start self-editing now. Sure. Um, well, are we ready for the recap? Uh, assuming you've got a prediction for how much time you think you need for this chapter, which I feel that to get this under two minutes, you're going to have to do these vague Trelawney kind of predictions of what we're going to talk about rather than actually describe the chapter. Well, Maybe. There are a bunch of, I'm looking through my notes, I feel like I have a bunch of, like, short sentences here. <laughs> All right. Well, if you still want to stick to two minutes, I've got the stopwatch ready. Let's Best try. Of luck. Let's try, Spencer. Okay. So, as expected, Draco is leading the charge on making fun of Harry's Dementor experience, but a Gryffindor versus Slytherin Quidditch match is coming, and they have all new classes to learn about. Although it looks like Hermione's got three classes at once, Hagrid stops by very excited to be teaching, uh, but it's divination first at the top of the North Tower. They get lost and ask the way from a very belligerent knight in a painting, Sir Cadigan. They climb up the ladder and enter Sybil Trelawney's classroom, which looks like a mashup of a fortune teller's tent and a tea shop. This insect-like woman floats around offering prophecies based on her inner eye. So they're starting the term reading tea leaves. Harry and Ron pair up to try to decipher images uh, using unfogging the future with relatively little success until Professor Trelawney comes through and immediately reads death and danger in Harry's cup, including the Grimm. Some of the class freaks out, Harry is confused, and Hermione is not impressed. They head off to Transfiguration, where everyone is a little rattled, and Professor McGonagall is put out that no one is interested in her discussion about Animagi, uh, even after she turns into a cat. 
She promptly lets everyone know that Trelawney regularly predicts death on the first day of class. Ron is still unconvinced and is particularly irked at how blasé Hermione is about the whole thing. Then it's care of magical creatures, which they have with the Slytherins. Hagrid's first disappointment comes when no one can open their monster book of monsters. Malfoy is predictably horrible, but on to the lesson. Hippogriffs, half horse, half bird, deadly but sort of pretty. Hagrid has a lot of actual useful advice about them. They're proud, have to make up. Uh, have to make the first move. You have to bow to them, keep eye contact. Harry gets volunteered to demonstrate demonstrate with Buckbeak, uh, which is uncomfortable, but okay. So the class starts to, uh, well, th and then Har Hagrid tells Harry to ride him, which is somewhat worse. So the class starts to work with them. Malfoy gets Buckbeak and immediately starts needling him. So Buckbeak gives him a pretty hard slash across the arm with his talons. Chaos ensues. Hagrid runs Malfoy to the infirmary. Alternative stories about what actually happens start spreading immediately. After dinner, they go to check on Hagrid, who's dead drunk. They try to make him feel better, and Hagrid sticks his head in a bucket of water to sober up. And then he realizes who they are and what time it is. He yells at Harry and drags them all back up to the castle. Four seconds over, but I'll give it to you. Oh, that was impressive. Thank you. Um, you covered three courses and like three discussion meals about the courses in the course of two minutes. Well done. This, I opened this chapter today and looked at the sheer number of pages and realized that what I, once again, what I thought was going to be two chapters was in fact in one chapter and um, <laughs> <laughs> thought I saw the grim myself at that point. So mm, mm. yes. Uh, BJ, what do you have for us? So, so I have a couple of things, but one of the things that, that I wanted to mention um, is that in some ways this is probably one of my favorite chapters hey. that we've had so far. In what ways, BJ? Uh, <laughs> it sounds like you're dreading what I'm going to say. I, I don't trust that you enjoy any of this. <laughs> um, She's seeing Death Owens, BJ. Go on. Because this is sort of the first time that we've had a good look as to what a student's experience at Hogwarts is day to day. Yes. Hmm. Okay. I mean, we have a little, a couple of things that are just a little bit more fantastical than they probably would otherwise be, like predicting death and and some like first day class stunts. But for the most part, like I think this is one of the first times that we just have a narration of like what going to class is mm -hmm. and like how the students experience that and interact with each other that I just didn't feel like we got in the first two books. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I feel like the first two books um, were really like kind of rapid fire on getting to plot points and information. And mm -hmm. this chapter gets to a lot of information that is like super necessary going forward, but does so with the understanding that like, oh, right, these are just students going to school. Yeah. And like and changing classes and getting lost on the way to and going to lunch. And yeah. Mm hmm. Um, and so I guess this is the first chapter where um, I felt like I got a character view experience of Hogwarts where, you know, we had a little, we had some of that with Diagon Alley in some pre in like two chapters ago. Mm -hmm. um, here's where like, I, I, I am beginning to understand what it's like to be at Hogwarts where I just didn't get that in the past two books. Interesting. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. But I do have things to wheeze about. Sure. Okay. Um, so a uh, couple of, of things. Uh, Sarah, as, as um, you, our resident expert in the English language, how many periods would you say would go into an ellipsis? Um, so it depends a little bit. Okay. It's either three or four. Okay. And it depends on where in a sentence an ellipsis is occurring. Okay. 
Um, if it's um, in the middle of a sentence, it should be three mm-hmm. three three periods. If it's at the okay. end of a sentence, it should be four periods. Okay. Um, so I will say that there are times that the, uh, and I'm going to refer to this chapter as deus ex ellipsis, because <laughs> that's the most prominent quality in this chapter, mm. that there are times that this is followed um, in the chapter, but there are many times that it's not followed in the chapter. Um, I think we get one of my favorite uses of um, almost every piece of punctuation uh, in this chapter, except for dashes that are sometimes interspersed with ellipses for pauses, Mm -hmm. um, with Hagrid speaking, saying... I highlighted this because I knew you would go into it. All right question mark he said (laughs) eagerly comma pausing on the way to the staff table period you're my first lesson ever exclamation point right after launch exclamation point been up since five getting everything ready for ellipse four period ellipsis hope it's okay four period ellipsis me come a teacher three period ellipsis (laughs) honestly four period ellipsis end quote um so that mostly um but we have a couple of other where where it just sort of seems to bounce around between three and four um and again you know there's this uh one paragraph a little bit later uh where it seems to mostly go correctly with the four versus three Mm -hmm. um right you've got a crooked sort of cross dot 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 he consulted on fogging the future. That means you're going to have, quote, trials and suffering, dash. Sorry about that, dash. But there's a, a thing that could be the sun, three dot ellipsis, hang on, three dot ellipsis. That means, quote, great happiness, ellipsis. So you're going to suffer, but be very happy. And then we have the correct four. Mm-hmm. Um, I just love that there are two different pause mechanisms that were played <laughs> <laughs> one paragraph. Well, I, I, I feel like the sorry pause. about that could have been a parenthetical. Yeah, so it's clearly like a parenthetical pause rather than an, an other pause. But I like that they're differentiated <laughs> and it's just sort of all kinds of funky, funky ways of doing this. Um, but yeah, it seems like there is three dot ellipses at the end of a quote that's commonly at the end of a paragraph, but that only happens sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I, I am tempted to, to write a letter to the editor and say, okay, so, so in this paragraph, in this chapter, there is a four-dot ellipsis when, you know, in this ch- chapter, there's a three-dot ellipsis. But then I feel like I'm, I'm complaining about... Uh, scratchy having a xylophone rib that that makes a different noise when you hit it twice Simpsons. so um yeah so that that was the the entertainment that i have for for this chapter um for the most part and then there's one other thing that i'm going to comment that might be in a newbie's note um where professor mcgonagall tells harry that if he dies he doesn't need to hand in his homework that was just funny mm-hmm. um which which tickled me Hey, as we've seen in this world, that is a legitimate statement of what ongoing duties will be. He could totally be a ghost. He might still have his obligations as a student. We don't know. Well, uh, and with I that, mm-hmm. ellipsis. I'll hand it over to our newbies' notes. Uh, would that be a three or a four ellipsis, PJ? 
uh, well, since it was in the middle of the sentence, it should be a three, but given given what's been going on, I have no idea. <laughs> it's a couple of M dashes. Mm, okay. Well, this chapter just reiterates again that there are no, no redeeming qualities whatsoever about either Malfoy or the Slytherins. Just nothing. Between mocking Harry and Hagrid, disrupting his first course, playing up an injury, being more insufferable morons and getting away with it, these are just vile people, and this book has offered me nothing at all to have a different opinion on the subject. And that's just continuing a trend in the last two books. I'll be curious if we ever get a more well-rounded view of these characters, but previously I at least could, you know, look at it in the idea that this was just Harry's perspective, given how much he hated Malfoy and the Slytherins were the imminent rivals of his house. But no, they're just bad people. Maybe in the future something will be offered to redeem them, but I'm doubting it at this point. They just seem like they're cartoon villain stand-ins. On the other hand, we get a much more rounded por portrait of both the Weasley twins and McGonagall, in that both of them take, both, I've heard them as in, as the Weasley twins as an individual, because they practically are, uh, <laughs> take the time to boost up Harry's uh, morale as he's going through some really rough phases of where the Weasley twins, you know, talking about just how utterly terrifying and horrible the Dementors are and how much Malfoy freak the hell out, but that's getting no press. McGonagall steps in to, you know, banish the class concerns about divination being practically bullshit, which is really interesting to see her just cast this really wide net of aspersions in this entire magical school. It's just like, eh, you know, it might be real with some people, but Trelawney, eh, no. <laughs> this is all just crap. So that was nice to see those aspects of those characters. And like, BJ, like you pointed out, some legitimate, I think, humor from McGonagall, though, as said, it could actually be standing orders with respect to dead students. <laughs> Don't know. I don't know whether Mur Moaning Myrtle attempted to attend class for a while after death or not. We don't have that information. The impression we do get about the Dementors is fascinating about how they work. Uh, this is the Weasley twins just kind of speculating based on what their dad said, but the idea of sucking happiness out of a place mm -hmm. is broad and terrifying. I mean, that could express itself in any way, but seems to express itself in a very personal kind of way. That they're, Whatever they're doing is in some ways has a general effect, but also could be targeted. And maybe that's why it's affecting Harry more, that he's some aspect of his background and trauma makes him especially sensitive to the idea of what little happiness he has being pulled away from him. But, again, these are just rank speculations. I don't think we can really assign this to a scientific basis, other than the idea that their offhand comment that prisoners go mad in there seems both accurate and, again, a real fundamental flaw in how the wizarding world does crime and punishment. Maybe they're just some hungry daughters. <laughs> hmm, good reference. Yeah, that is a comparison between them, how they work. It, I mean, we've seen before that not everybody is sent to Azkaban forever. So don't they think it's a bad idea that if everyone goes stark raving mad during their time there, that there might be a bit of a recidivism problem, or at least burden on the state issue in terms of having to deal with the insane upon leaving? Eh, doesn't seem like the wisdom world cares too much about that. Hermione's comments about... How she's being able to be in multiple classes are interesting in the fact that she's being cagey about it, which I don't get. It's like she's saying that she fixed it all with McGonagall, which is ambiguous, and then dodges the question like three or four times over the course of this chapter. The which British are just very good at scheduling. It's fine. <laughs> we see that she's literally <laughs> apparently attending classes that are all happening at the same time. That she's attending classes that she could not have been at because they saw her in the room when the other class was apparently occurring or just hadn't happened yet. So, what are our possibilities? Um, 
BJ, you've previously been taunting me with the idea of time-related words, so time travel, maybe, that could work. Uh, that would have massive implications if time travel exists in the Wizarding World, because, correct me if I'm wrong, time magic hasn't really been something we've seen yet? At least not that I'm aware of. Uh, but if it does, I guess I can understand why Hermione would be a little bit cagey about those details that McGonagall may have given her, because I can imagine that would be a regulated field of magic they wouldn't want students finagling with. <laughs> Other options being cloning, which, you know, the McGonagall works in kind of a field that relates to turning things into different things. Maybe she's got, you know, either a clone or a golem sitting in classes and feeding back information for her. Or maybe she turned Cruikshank into a student. Very possible. I mean, there's any number of options to go through here. Also, you know, in a modern technology world, maybe she's just got webcams. But <laughs> uh, electronics yeah, but... don't work in Hogwarts. So oh, no. Me. She could totally have webcams. It would just be like. A spider that, stones. <laughs> yes. that, like, has an interesting web and, you know, keeps an eye out on the board. <laughs> in she's, any of these... She's enlisted Charlotte, who writes her notes. <laughs> any of these are possible, and, you know, some idea of working an object into something that's helping her see seems like it'd be in fitting with McGonagall's area of study. But who knows? As I said, BJ, you've been taunting me with time-related things about this for just chapters now, so sure, maybe that's possible. <laughs> Uh, Hagrid is now developing a trend in every chapter we see him in of walking into the room carrying a dead animal. That just seems to be his thing. Like, in the last book, he walked in carrying a rooster because, you know, it was fitting, well, providing us various degrees of foreshadowing about what the monster might have been. Now he's carrying a dead polecat. I don't know whether... Which I, I googled this, but I just want to double-check. A polecat's like a weasel or a ferret, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So... I don't know. I wonder know. if Levi was sad when, when he read this. <laughs> oh, that's true. We heard last time we had a pet weasel oh, when we were growing yes. up. Or ferret. Uh, I don't know whether this is giving us some hint about what the big bad's going to be. About, you know, maybe these death omens also have a negative effect on polecats. But what it gives me is, like, uh, some direct images in my mind of uh, now Haggard being a stand-in for Huck Finn. Just walking into the book, swinging a dead cat by the tail. And... <laughs> There seem to be fitting comparisons there between the two about their various looks outlooks on life. Uh, Sir Catagon's interlude in the story is random but funny and just raises questions for me that I'll go into in our question segment about how artistic life works, how it interacts, because <laughs> it's fascinating about the world these guys live in and how they appear to be part of one vast artistic collage that they can just jump between. It's almost like they're, what we're seeing is a window that is just connected there is a world on the other side that we're getting windows into, and all of those are disconnected and can be casually jumped between. Uh, Professor Talani is quite the gypsy parody of every aspect of that room. Even just the means of divination is meant to just be a send-up of, of, of various fortune-teller worlds. Just We've seen before the wizarding world and our world mirror in terms of how magic chooses to express itself, but the fact that apparently divination is practiced through literally reading tea leaves looking into crystal balls, and friggin' palm reading is... Well, it just raises questions about which one came first, the chicken or the egg. I think McGonagall uh, has some of those same questions. Uh, it, yes. It's just like, I, no, this isn't actually a field. We just borrowed this from muggles to make a living when people were ostracized. <laughs> it's, this isn't actually magic. Uh, I'm, I, I'm amused by the name Trelawney, because it is uh, Cornish, meaning a person from a town with a church, which is just always a name I found funny. Uh, and I enjoy that this chapter really plays up the idea of debating whether she's full of crap or not. It's like, 
we have characters directly pondering whether this is actually real or whether it is just elaborate showmanship. Either way, she sells the room well, which, as I'll point out later, seems to be what a lot of professors really like to emphasize on day one, is just that, be impressed with what I can do, regardless of whether it has a practical implication or not. So that's actually kind of funny. Um, there's a, a set of rules about how uh, profits are decided to be profits uh, in the Bible, mm-hmm. and they're not allowed to like basically be deemed prophets if they only prophesize doom and gloom. <laughs> because because presumably if you prophesize doom and gloom, there might be a ways to avoid it, and sometimes not. Mm-hmm. But like that's not like a a thing that you can do because mm-hmm. because it's bs like that mm-hmm. it's like well you know you were going to die until you turned your life around so i was right all along and, and yes. then it's just like no that's no and that kind of like is a variation or, or hermione's point is a very variation on this um which is the sort of like well i don't know maybe if you just keep telling people they're gonna die they're gonna mm-hmm. freak out and have a heart attack like <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah the main example we see in this chapter, I mean, she offers lots of predictions which are utterly unverifiable, at least at this point. The main one we see that comes true is Neville knocking something over. I'm not impressed. It's Neville. Neville does, <laughs> Neville does that without prompting in any chapter. That's just read. That is a reading of the tea leaves and just being observational about past events. That's not seeing the future. So I, we're given enough that if we if we want to hang our hat on it, we can. Like there may be a grain of truth in this. She's just also a bit nutty and really overly fond of showmanship. I mean, the fact everybody keeps referencing this black dog, we know that that's a thing related to Harry. What it means, no one has a clue. Given that there's other books after this, I'm guessing not death, or also the, we're going to find out the nurse is really good at healing things beyond simply just injuries. Um, but I'm... Hmm? I was going to say, you know, it'd be really interesting if uh, she had some role in making some of these things come about. And that'd be a very, very, very <laughs> funny way for a divination professor to be like, oh, you're going to be visited by this sign. And then, she I mean, she's standing in the rafters, so like, pushing whatever. things down. It's like, yeah, yeah, you're going to see a scary black dog. And it's like, okay, yeah, you can do that. <laughs> If so, that seems just unnecessary when it comes to Neville. You don't need telekinesis to knock things over when it comes to him. If you vaguely suggest an object, he will knock it over. This is what he runs on. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sarah, like you referenced, I really enjoy that the subject is the anti-Hermione and that she responds accordingly. And that the moment they say that, okay, there's no amount of book learning that will help you with this, she is dead to the <laughs> subject. She has declared a mortal enemy and she is just acting on it going forward. That, I have assumed the role of the Doubting Thomas, and I will continue to take that up every time this subject comes up in the near future. And I don't think she's wrong, but it's just really funny to see that even the most casual mention of divination for the rest of this chapter, she just jumps on it instantly as being bullshit. As said, I think she's right. I just I have an inherent uh, just I have an inherent doubt when it comes to the subject anyway, and this chapter's not helping my my predispositions to it. Helped by the fact that McGonagall just rains crap down on a fellow professor before this chapter is done, which is interesting, because she wasn't even really uh, she wasn't willing to take out a certain defense against the dark arts professor last book, but this but with respect to divination, she just cannot contain her scorn. <laughs> um, I wonder if it's also because a lot of uh, students go from divination to her class, and so she has to hear about it. Yeah. There are definitely some classes that I had in like middle school and high school where you could tell like there was a weird rivalry between two teachers that often taught like one right after the other 
Mm-hmm. And it was clearly because it was just like, yeah, that that teacher that you just had. Mm, I don't... <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's definitely possible. It also just seems like in terms of just nature of character, McGonagall and Trelawney seem like they're just such opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of how they carry themselves mm-hmm. that that mm-hmm. just could be a certain play there as well. But it, it was nice McGonagall try to, you know, book up the room from what otherwise there are hints of doom and gloom that were upon them. Uh, I brought up in our last book that I got really annoyed at J.K. Rowling with respect to just a, a dropping Fox's magical power that will prove imminently important to the plot just in the middle of somebody else's spiel. And so I'm being hyper aware of these now, and I'm assigning Animagi as now being the thing that's going to control this plot going forward, just because it is, fits in the exact same way that J.K. Rowling did it in the last book of where it's a spiel, everybody else is thinking about something else, it's entirely offhand. And it's the description about oh, wizards being able to turn into uh, beasts at will. I, I have that right? I think that's what I wrote down. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I'm, yeah, this is what I'm saying is now going to be the driving force of the plot. Just because J.K. Rowling pulled this over me last time and I'm not going to let it happen again. <laughs> Don't know whether it's actually true, but I'm just writing all of these down. as go, you will not, I will not miss this next time. So, yeah, <laughs> Animagi, we're seeing various vague beast creatures. We've got serious blackout. Let's say all of these are connected in some fucking way. I don't know. I'm annoyed. We'll see. Um, let's see here. Uh, okay. So defense against magical creatures, or what, what? What is the name of Hagrid's course? Actually, it's like care of magical ma- creatures. I, st- I stick to defense against. We'll work under that. Uh, it does seem like a surprisingly useful course. I was casting a certain degree of doubt on how much this would actually come into play in a wizarding life, but from what we see. Yeah, there are some quirks that you need to know to survive being in the wizarding world, just being around the various magical creatures that inhabit it. And you know what? Hagrid does a journeyman job at it. He makes the course entertaining, he provides necessary information, and I think it would be ultimately successful and remembered well, if not for three exceptions. Point number one, I think Hagrid really missed an opportunity when it came to this monstrous book. This could have totally been worked into the lesson plan about, okay, what I, what I meant by all this was that you need to understand magical creatures and understand that while they appear to be a threat and by their nature can be a threat, the simple act of knowing more about them and meeting them in our own terms and trying to understand them can be an important part of establishing an effective relationship going forward. If he'd been setting that up, that would have been a very effective lesson that he had all the moving parts for. This being Hagrid, apparently his reason for picking this book was he thought it would be funny. And yeah, missed opportunity there, Hagrid. You could have worked that into your lesson plan quite admirably. Uh, two, he brings this up, he's aiming way too high to start. You know, hippogriffs are awesome, I want one, can I have one? Um, but, yeah, start a bit earlier. There's any variety of creatures we've seen you just naturally interact with in your day-to-day. Maybe go there to work your way up with your students under certain risks. But, to be fair, as we saw both with McGonagall and with Trelawney, it seems like on day one professors really like to play their hand. Just, like, impress their students, give them a a really over-the-top depiction of what the course is going to be like and what they'll be capable of as they go on with things. So I can understand his motivation, particularly it being his first day, but we see it blow up a little bit. Do you remember Mandrake in Sprout's class? Because that was an interesting, essentially, introduction to herbology. Yeah, they seem to really like to play up the lethal on day one. (laughs) They had Uh, at least had herbology the year before. Yeah, and she advised them a lot about a lot of safety parameters in place. But again, I'm going to bring this up. 
it really seems unfair that Hagrid's getting a lot of pushback with respect to injuring a student when that just seems to be the norm in every freaking class we've seen so far. <laughs> but we'll get into that in a second. But uh, it's mostly Harry getting injured, so... No, eh. no. There's a long list of Neville getting injured every single class he's in, but Neville being Neville. Uh, but advice for every one of these professors, Hagrid included, uh, liability waivers. Get them signed before they walk in the damn door. Just do it. Do it. Get it done. I don't know why the university doesn't have that the moment you get off the damn train, but protect yourself, people, please. Yeah, there's a permission form to go to Hogsmeade, but not to... I mean, they're in Ireland or Scotland. Do they really have, like, liability there? Uh, Well, you know, possibly. At least the students are pondering the idea it could be a thing. But it's a great reference to the idea that vaguely being exposed to alcohol-related products, liability form needed. Imminent risk of death on a daily basis? Eh, that's why you're here. Uh, BJ, it's good to meet your namesake. I didn't. <laughs> I was not anticipating this, but nice to meet you, BJ. Neither was I. Uh, for those that don't know, uh, for our extra content, we got assigned various Harry, uh, Harry Potter world names, and BJ is Buckbeak Abbott. Don't think we've met Abbott yet, but at least we know where you get your first name from. Yes. I can understand why you had somewhat mixed feelings on the subject, that you've been named after an animal, but, you know, eh. when it comes to things, Buckbeak seems pretty awesome. Uh, I mean, it, it has a very nice presence, actually, like, nice bearing, good pride, and, you know, is a Pegasus equivalent, so <laughs> all these things. I'm perfectly good. willing to inflict <laughs> pain and misfortune on, yeah. on students, so. Yeah, I, I gotta ask you guys, uh, me, uh, from, you know, what we've seen previously that uh, physical injury means nothing in the wisting world that basically everything up to and almost including death can just be corrected by the act of waving a spell i'm down i'm volunteering first thing for, first and <laughs> foremost to be part of this course who cares if i get clawed <laughs> this can be fixed how about y'all would you choose to you know volunteer the same way harry did to be the first guinea pig in the hippograph trials <laughs> well i think his his volunteering was not quite voluntary but i'm um, sure <laughs> well his volunteering, I think, was just being a bro. Everybody else was just letting Hagrid there wither on the vine, and Harry wasn't going to let him. wasn't going to do him like that. No, I think it would have been great. Uh, hippogriffs seem very interesting. How about you, BJ? Uh, I'm a little bit more wary than you guys are. Um, but but this is much more the I want to see them move about first. Ah. <laughs> uh. Um, because I guess how I'm imagining it, and I'm kind of curious how they did it in the movie, is there's no real place to be when they're flying. Because I, I don't know, I just imagine them, the the horse part of them, just sort of like flopping down. Because any other way to do it, it w- would require a lot more musculature that doesn't make sense. <laughs> and so I just imagine like the hind legs just sort of flopping down and the back being perpendicular with the ground and so it's just like this is this is not a method of conveyance that makes any sort of sense bj this is a magical mode of transportation that was developed before they had the idea of you know stop motion animation or filming the greeks were just writing it down or drawing pictures of it they didn't really go into that mechanics so just suspend your disbelief uh it is interesting to see that i'm guessing it's, I mean, from the last book, we had Fox, or introduced magical creature. Magical creature proves imminently important to the plot later. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm guessing Buckbeak will serve a similar role, uh, which, given that he's a Pegasus equivalent, I... Well, because we, we got introduced to other magical creatures, at least not, informationally, that... Not, not named ones. Uh, we've had the centaurs. Mm, okay, but they're in a different stand in the sense that they are interactive. They are actual characters. 
Whereas Fox, I'll, I'll accept that he's a character with personality, but it's not the same degree of, I'm having a conversation with you over the course of the story. It's more just, um, you have appeared, I know your name now. We'll see what happens. All like the the familiars and and owls. Hey, I think they're just owls. <laughs> okay. Uh, but you know, every you know, if we go back to freaking Pericles, the idea of a Pegasus stand-in being an important part of the story fits. So I'll be curious to see what Fox does going. Uh, not Fox. Buckbeak does going forward. Uh, let's see here. Uh, Malfoy's freak out and breakdown. Uh, I'm annoyed that this somehow will not have social repercussions, despite the fact Harry being confronted with a demon and fainting will. Uh, I think this is in some way driven by the fact that from what we've seen before, all bullies are Slytherin, and they, for some reason, don't eat their own, and there's just no justice in the world with respect to either of those points. What about Percy? Percy did... Percy bullies with authority. <laughs> I wouldn't really say that's really bullying. He's, just at, he, he's being the head boy enforcer different category. I don't think you would tolerate what the Slytherins are doing if you saw it in person. I think there's also like an interesting thing going on here um, with the kind of the social repercussions for Harry and the Dementor and um, Malfoy and Buckbeak that Malfoy's injury such as it is um, and as we've already talked about like injuries, physical injuries don't really mean much in the magical world um mm-hmm. but it is like a visible physical injury whereas like harry's stuff is just happening in his head um so there's like a strange commentary on or an interesting commentary i think on like mental illness going on here too yeah but and also public versus private yes things yes mm-hmm. so this was like in front of everybody and and yep. what happened to harry was i guess in front of his friends and a professor and like malfoy sort of saw the after effects i think mm-hmm. and whatever actual suffering there was was like purely private really mm-hmm. yeah I mean, it's a good point you bring up about this issue of mental health in the wizarding world of where they do seem to maintain a certain degree of like victorian area flippance when it comes to this subject it's like you know oh you've gone mad we'll just lock you up in an asylum forever mm-hmm. that's all we can do now Oh, we send you to a prison which actually makes you go mad there? Oh, well, that's just how that works. It, Yeah, that's not healthy. But it, it is frustrating with respect to the whole physical injury thing and Malfoy playing it up is that, like Harry points out, they regrew my friggin' bones. It's like, <laughs> this is a world where physical injuries are not an impediment at all. And from what we've seen before, students get injured all the damn time. I mean, if we go back over our prior Snape chapters... Has there been, like, a single chapter where a student isn't in some way scalded or malformed or in any way, for some reason, sent to the nurse before he's done? That just seems like he... If at least three aren't sent to the nurse by the time he's done, it's been a bad day for him. <laughs> Same is true with the respect to the Mandrakes. It's like, okay, keep your headphones on, and if for any reason they aren't on perfectly, you'll die. Okay, everyone go. Let's just go with that. And one of the students gets paralyzed, and they're like, oh, dear... He didn't have his headphones on. That's on him. It's like, <laughs> no, you're inviting ki- you're inviting children to handle you know spent uranium as part of their day to day courses, and you're expecting them to be safe. It's like, no, some of this is on you in terms of what your lesson plan is. But no, we're gonna blame Hagrid entirely. It's like do the rest of these professors get away with it just because they have tenure and Hagrid isn't there yet. Is that just how this works? Because the pondering of this chapter and what Hagrid seems convinced of himself is that he's canned day one he's can't now that may be because Malfoy's dad is on the board of directors I think is he still after what happened at the end of the last book 
Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I don't know how, given all that getting out. I don't again, remember exactly. It seems like Dumbledore makes no effort to ever work within official lines to do anything, despite the fact he could have obviously gotten that guy in trouble for what he did. But, I don't know. It seems like they're really setting up that Hagrid's not going to be a professor for long, and that just frustrates me, because it is just willfully inconsistent with how the rest of this world plays out. But I don't think that's an inconsistency by which I will judge the text. I think they're really playing up that the world is not fair, and the Slytherins apparently have an edge for no damn good reason. That ends my commentary. Uh, let's move on to House Bones. All right. Well, I think uh, we have some, if, to my mind, pretty clear winners and losers of this chapter. Um, really? Yeah. I mean, I think that each of those has options. But I, you know, despite like a, a glancing blow from a hippogriff, uh, Draco Malfoy has clearly had the best out of, chapter out of anyone here. Yeah barely even injured and he's getting he's getting everything he wants mocking all those around him ending professor's careers <sighs> screw that guy it's been a good day <laughs> for him yeah uh I, in in terms of losers I, from the highest of highs of last chapter uh-huh. uh to the um sticking of his head into a bucket of water at the end of this chapter <laughs> uh hagrid precipitous fall from grace yeah as you said, all the worst is because he was on cloud nine. This is everything he's dreamed for, and now it's just under imminent threat of a whiny with brat. Even at the beginning of this chapter, Hagrid was in a great mood. Mm-hmm. Not and good. It all came tumbling down. Not good. Um, BJ, it seemed like you might have had other contenders to suggest. Oh no, not so much contenders. Just like a, I was curious where you're going to go with it because there were a lot of. Uh, successes and failures mm-hmm. um i find it interesting that neville doesn't get brought up um, because he's not having a worse day maybe <laughs> than other ones we just learn more uh, about his day <laughs> yeah um his life then... is pain it's just par for the course for him <laughs> there's been no there's been no significant movement from the mean yeah um, and I guess the other thing that I wanted to mention is that we were going to talk about this, and I can't remember how well we've been on it, but Harry has bad times when he is separated from his trusty Dusty Owl. Yes. Mm, fair point. Yes, um, and, and Hedwig is in the Owlery at this point, um, not like with him. We have not seen her over the course of this chapter, and he does not have a great chapter. Yeah, so I wonder if it's just, like, a general chapter thing. Like, if the chapter mentions Hedwig in, in like, interacting with Harry, mm-hmm. Harry has a good chapter. Mm-hmm. And if it's not, Harry has a bad chapter. We might put together a visualization for this going forward. <laughs> <laughs> PJ, if you gave us strings and bar charts, I think we'd appreciate it. Yeah. So, questions? Uh, yeah, a few. Okay. Uh I'll start with one that you can either just tell me or not, just because I'm fascinated by it and curious how they work. Is the description we get from the Weasley twins of how Dementors function in terms of sucking happiness out of a place in person accurate? Um, it is, <laughs> it's not, mm, it's a sort Barbara. of, it's a yes and. Um, it's okay. not wrong. It's just not like actually what's going, what's happening. Okay, so it's a description of the effect, not necessarily the, how it's functioning. Yeah, I mean, it kind of, it, it's it's just an overly simplistic explanation of what's going on because like obviously they have only sort of heard from other people who don't have 
like extended interact. Very few people in the world have extended interactions with Dementors. Um, sure. Yeah. So it's it is right, but there are other things that are going on as well. Okay. BJ, what you got? Um, Spencer, you ask your uh, <laughs> picture question, and then I want to probably follow up with a bunch of other questions depending on what exactly you ask. Okay. Yeah, this is definitely one of my questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've seen a lot to suggest that pictures or photos or anything that is created by means of art in the magical world has a life of its own and a world of its own and just goes about its events separate and independent from us. Do we get any further explanation for how that works? Is this something that's actually created by the artist and has parameters set by that? Or is it more of a unlocking the elephant from the marble blocks that was always there and we're just getting a a bit of a window in? So... It's, I, I guess that's a, it's unclear to me, like, when life is imbued, or this sort of facsimile of life is imbued into the portraits. Um, if it's, like, when the artist decides the last brushstroke has happened, or if there's some sort of, like, magical process. Because we did learn that in developing the pictures that move, although they don't have as much life as artwork does... Um, in photographs, there is a particular developing process that pictures have to go through um, mm-hmm. that uh, Colin Creevy told us a little bit about last book. Um, so I'm, there might be something similar going on with the portraits themselves. Uh, we don't get any specific information about that. And we don't, I guess we don't learn a whole lot of specific information about how the paintings are created at any given mm-hmm. point, um, but we do get to see them in action a lot more. Yeah, uh, and it's it, it's fascinating to me to wonder when the magic comes in because if it if the magic is going in constantly as you're painting, I'm just picturing you getting into an argument with your work as you're going through <laughs> it because you know if you did the night first, he now has an opinion about what what what, what else you're painting in his world. I like to think about sort of wizard artists have all decided that they paint like the mouth last on whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not doing this by committee. (laughs) Well, but also presumably they couldn't do, it couldn't move while they were painting or they just have to be like, no, sit still. I like, I need to like paint your hand. Yeah. I, so this conversation makes me think that probably there's some sort of spell or incantation that happens afterwards, but I don't know. Um, so follow up, um, are all paintings connected and are is is time the same for all of them like they're all in the present um yeah so it seems that all paintings at hogwarts are connected so i think all paintings like in a given building are connected um or Mm -hmm. in a given location are connected because like we we certainly see multiple times not just sir cadigan here in this chapter but we see multiple times uh like people going to visit each other in different portraits, et cetera, et cetera. Um, mm-hmm. And then, and I think I've mentioned this before, like it, sometimes if a particular subject has more than one portrait of themselves, they can kind of travel back and forth between the portraits. Although I think that that is like only in particular circumstances and I think has to have been planned. Um, time... Because I thought... Go ahead. There was some visitations between some of the ones in Hogwarts that weren't planned. Oh, well, I mean, like, 
The But it's only like the ones that are planned that might not be in Hogwarts that can do it. Uh, so for example, if you had a portrait ha- of you hanging in Hogwarts and you had mm-hmm. one in your house, um, mm-hmm. you can travel back and forth between those two portraits. Gotcha. Okay. But those are, I think, a little more planned. Um, okay. But people like in the portraits, in the paintings within Hogwarts can just sort of like run around. Um, so actually a quick follow-up to that before we get into the time thing, because I think that's going to be short. Mm-hmm. Have there ever been portrait wars? Um, there are, uh, not to my knowledge, although there are certainly like portraits that don't like each other. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I guess I could see somebody that was a little bit more, uh, not friendly painting a bunch of pictures of themselves mm-hmm. and... I mean, honestly, like if you're going to try and take over the school or do something like that, and one of the big sources of information is, the, is these portraits, I'd hang up a bunch of portraits and, you know, give them shivs or something. And... <laughs> yeah, I don't, hmm. We don't see any... Portrait on portrait violence. No. <laughs> no, is not that I'm, I'm, I'm desperately trying to figure this out, but I don't think so. <laughs> Uh, although, you know, this is maybe why you were not invited to Hogwarts BJ. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Even Slytherins wouldn't have thought of that. <laughs> Professor Trelawney has seen something in the tea leaves. And has... <laughs> well, I have my own fan fiction start. <laughs> mm. Mm. Oh, I like it. Mm. Um, so your other question was about time in the portraits. Is it, like, always in the present? Mm-hmm. Yeah, more or less. Like, okay. uh, if you were... I guess my... Go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, I guess my question is also, like, the, it's unclear, like, if the people age in their portraits, because sort of time does seem to continue mm-hmm. in some portraits, mm-hmm. uh, because uh, Percy's girlfriend had some teenager issues, mm-hmm. but then presumably there would be people in portraits that would have died, yeah. and that doesn't really make sense. Yeah, no, so um, the the portraits... the. The time in the portraits stays the same. Um, and there's not like an aging process in in the portraits. Okay. And they are then existing in the present. Cool. Yeah. Spencer. Um, I will say though, it which I think I, I think I'm remembering this correctly in relation to the portraits in the movies in the scene in which Sir Cadigan, and maybe maybe this is a different scene, but I think it's Sir Cadigan is running through the portraits to lead them along. He mm-hmm. uh, changes to whatever style a different painting was in. Oh, I got to pull that up. That sounds fun. I, I think I'm remembering that correctly. And if they didn't do that, they should have. Yeah, that sounds <laughs> like a really clever Hope, idea. Hopefully there's no, like, Picasso-like like Picasso. uh, painter <laughs> yeah. or, or, you know, a deconstructionalist yeah. or something along those lines. <laughs> a Pollock painting would be very fun. Yeah. <laughs> I think I'm stuck. You know, (laughs) carrying the splatters through to the next painting. (laughs) If you run into a Jackson Pollock, would even be allowed to exist? There are no characters allowed there. Sure. Uh, I've got a question that I I can very much assume what category it's going to fall into. Okay. Uh, Hermione, what 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 is going on? And I figure you can't answer that, but could you at least give me some hints on why she's being so cagey about it? Um, I think you said three chapters, right? Oh, for learning about, no, it's going to take a little longer to learn about what's going on with her. <laughs> is there any information you can provide me, or is all of this going to be wrapped up in spoilers and plot and that shouldn't be touched right now? Yeah, just move on, Spencer. <laughs> Fine. Okay. Uh, how about magical animal intelligence? Can we go into that? Okay. Okay. 
Now, this is the general question of where we, we discussed in the last book how, you know, conscious Fox was, how mm -hmm. much of his own character, how much he was acting on his own will. Uh, does Buckbeak roughly fall in the same category in terms of, you know, animal intelligence? Because it, it seems like it's able to understand and respond to things. I mean, it, it attacks Malfoy based on a foul word rather than a foul act. Um, do we have any indication of... Yeah. Your most... Okay, so go, go on. Well, I was... Like, Buckbeak is clearly a very intelligent creature and is kind of understands what's going on around him, um, mm -hmm. which gets borne out in kind of later scenes as well. Okay, that was kind of what I to go into. Yeah. I wasn't sure if it was just the tone of voice or whether or not... No, no, this is an intelligent understanding being. When Hagrid's describing it as being a proud creature, he's not just, you know, speaking, like a, speaking of a lion looking very proud. No, this is a being with culture and character. Mm -hmm. Okay, making sure. So which side of... Uh... The Tiger King do you fall on, given that you don't feel that lions have culture or character? <laughs> I've only watched one episode of that, and that's probably about as far as I'm going to go with respect to that show. <laughs> Good for you, Spencer. <laughs> it is just such concentrated trash, and I don't enjoy watching that. More questions? Uh, you know, i got like eight more, but I think they're all going to fall into the category of, oh, Spencer, just wait a minute. Uh, so I'm so why don't you give a list of like three or four questions and Sarah will, will choose one if it's answerable and maybe say the rest are verboten. No, it hurts my soul too much. I'll hold off for now. <laughs> BJ, do you have any other questions? Um, I think, I think I'm good. I think the paintings was really where I was getting caught up in, in all sorts of things. Um, I, I do have a question that definitely is a spoiler. Um, do I need to do earmuffs? No, I don't think so. How long do we have to wait before there's any like redeeming qualities to uh, a lot of the non-major characters? Is it going to be like three or four books until... There's character progression with them? Yeah. <laughs> okay. It's a while. Oh, oh I, hmm. I, uh, I actually have hopes now. I was not, not anticipating we'd ever get that. <laughs> <laughs> so our next chapter is chapter seven, The Boggart in the Wardrobe. I, I gotta say, there are some chapters where I can look at the title and have a pretty accurate read on what the hell <laughs> the chapter's gonna be about. The Boggart in the Wardrobe gives me nothing. Well, it's, it's, it's Humphrey. Humphrey Bogart, and we are... <laughs> you know, I don't remember Humphrey Bogart in a mummy role, but it's possible I missed that film. All right, well, this has been fun, y'all. Uh, it's per usual. And uh, look forward to do the next one. Till then.